All right, we are finishing up our study in James today. So we're in James chapter 5, starting verse 12. Uh, in two weeks, I'll start my study, Lord willing, I should say that. That's, that's from the book of James, right? Lord willing, I'll start my, my study on apologetics uh, called uh, Squared Away. And I think that's going to be a blessing to you. I hope it will be. I hope it will be a help to you in, in your interactions with people who are struggling with questions about, about Christianity and the scriptures. So what am I going to do next week? Next week, I plan to talk about what happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. There's about 400 years of gap there. And I find it very interesting, all the things that happened that uh, sort of set up the start of the New Testament era. This is not something that gets taught because it's not recorded in Scripture, but we do have secular history to tell us. And uh, I think you'll enjoy that. So that's what I'll be talking about next Next Sunday, don't worry, we will talk about Scripture too, but this is more of a background. All right? So James chapter 5, verse 12. I'm just going to read from verses 12, from verse 12 to the end of the book, verse 20, and then we'll talk about it. James writes, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." So I want you to think for a moment about that story we all know of Jesus cleansing the temple, flipping over tables, and chasing out the money changers, and, and opening the, the cages full of birds. It doesn't say he did that in the scriptures, but that's the way we picture it. Um, what was Jesus saying? Do you remember? He was saying, my, God says my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And saying, my house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting Jeremiah. But think about what he's saying there. He's saying, when my people gather, I want their gathering to be based on prayer. I want them to be a people of prayer. I don't just want this to be a show. I, I have to say, when I think about how we do church today, there's a lot of things I, I'm very happy about and I think that make God happy. I, I do think that uh, we preach the word as best we know how. I think that our, our singing uh, is genuine, whether all three services. We're not putting on a performance. Uh, you can hear people sing in all three services. This is, this is real worship, real praising the Lord. Um, I think our fellowship is genuine. I love to see people gathering in the atrium afterwards Whenever I have the chance to walk into a life group room, I see people loving each other and, and the Bible being taught. So I think there's a lot of things that happen that please the Lord. If there's one thing I think he has a, a, 
well, I think there are probably many things he, he wants to change in us, but one thing that I continually feel burdened about is we need to pray more. I think we need to pray more. And I, that's something I'm praying about how best to, to accomplish. God wants us to be a house of prayer. If we preach and sing and, and create programs, but we rarely pray as a group, what does that say? Does that say we think our efforts are enough? Now, that's, that's all me, okay? Let me look at what James says here at the end. What he talks about, I think, is describing what a house of prayer looks like. First of all, you may think verse 12 doesn't go with the rest, uh, but I do. In a house of prayer, first of all, we see there is honesty. There is honesty among the people of God. He says, don't swear by anything. Now, James is essentially repeating, not a direct quote, but repeating Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about this. And in both places, when you read scholars who've studied this intently, I agree with what they say. He's not saying that it's wrong for a Christian to ever take an oath. If you go to court and they ask you to put your hand on the Bible and say, uh, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or to take an oath of office, or to, uh, to swear uh, any kind of oath to get into the military or, or whatever the case may be. That's not what he's talking about. I don't believe. Now, there are some Christian denominations that refuse. The Quakers, I believe, are among them. Uh, and as much respect as I have for them, I don't think they're right about this. I don't think that's what, uh, God, what James or Jesus were talking about. We see Paul in more than one of his letters say, as God is my witness. That is a way of taking an oath. And here's something that may blow your mind. In Psalm 110, verse 4, God takes an oath. He says, God has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So I don't think it's saying that all oaths are wrong. But if you look at the context, if you look what he's saying, he's saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you look at Jesus' teaching, it's in the context of honesty. It's in the context of being a person of integrity. And what I, what I believe he's saying is, we should live in such a way that everyone knows whatever we say is true. We should live lives of such integrity. No one should ever say, oh, really? Do you promise? Do you swear? Do you, you, will you put your hand on a stack of Bibles, right? We should never have to uh, cross your heart, hope to die, right? We should always be such people of integrity that our word is our bond and people know that it's true. I think that's what it's talking about. So in a house of prayer, there is honesty. But then secondly, in verse 13, we see the people's first response to suffering is to pray. In a house of prayer, that's, that's what happens. Now, I've told this story before. It's, it's, it's a story that helps me understand what prayer should be. One of the most profound prayers I ever prayed was very short and very uneloquent. Uh, I was in college dating my future wife and uh, driving my car way too fast down 45 in a rainstorm because that's what you do when you're that age and hit a, slit, hit, hit a patch of, of water. You know, Houston, if there's a, if there's a heavy rain, there's going to be water on the freeways. And the car started to hydroplane, and I did the exact wrong thing. I hit the brakes, and it went into a spin. And 45, you know, 45 in the middle of the day was as busy as you can imagine it was. I knew as soon as that car started to spin that I was dead. But somehow, not only did I not die, nobody even hit me. When I finally stopped spinning, every car on the freeway had stopped and was waiting for me to stop spinning. 
song Jesus Take the Wheel? I did not write the song Jesus Take the Wheel, no. <laughs> Good question, though. No, but, but what I am telling you the story about is I realized after it was over that the whole time we were, I was spinning, I was saying two words over and over again, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord, please. That's all I could say. I couldn't form any other words. And when I got done, I said, thank you. Because I knew, and I was just shaking from head to toe, I knew he'd protected me. There's no other explanation for how you can go into a spin on 45 when there's cars everywhere and not even get hit. Um, and, but what really encouraged me about that is that when I went into that situation, my immediate thought was to pray. And that, to me, that, that was a sign that I was growing in Christ. I told my roommate who wasn't a Christian, he said, yeah, I would have been yelling something, but it wouldn't have been, please, Lord. And I thought, yeah, in another period of my life, I probably would have done the same. Now, I tell you all that to say this. The story of a church or the picture of a church that is a church that is a house of prayer is not necessarily one where they have organized prayer meetings. There's nothing wrong with organized prayer meetings. By the way, side note, if you ever want to read a, a challenging book, uh, there's a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. He, I don't know if he's still there, but for years was pastor of uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle. They're famous for their choir, but he writes that book to say the secret of their church is they have these Tuesday night prayer meetings, and that's what changed everything. So read that book sometime and get a, get a glimpse of what it looks like when a church has a powerful prayer ministry. And, and, and that is something organized, but I think the sign of a real house of prayer is not necessarily one where we say, okay, we're, gonna, we're all going to show up on Sunday afternoon and we're going to pray for our nation or we're going to gather before the church service and pray for the worship service. That's fine. But a real house of prayer is one where whenever there's a crisis or whenever there's a need, immediately people just spontaneously gather in groups and start praying. Pastor doesn't have to tell them to do it. Nobody has to organize it. It just happens. That's just the automatic response. And what we don't want is to be the kind of people that say, well, all we've got left to do is pray and say, oh, I guess it's gotten that bad, huh? No, that should be our first response. Prayer should be, I didn't make this up. I like it, but I didn't make it up. The prayer should be our steering wheel and not our spare tire. So there should be groups of people gathering around our church uh, campus and, and outside the church campus, just getting together and saying, we need to pray together for this issue, for this event, for this crisis. Number three, in house of prayer, there is joy. Because he says, if anyone's suffering, let him pray. But then he says, if anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. Well, we think about singing today in terms of performance, sad to say. Uh, and it's not necessarily bad that we've gotten to the point where we don't let just anybody up in front with a microphone to sing, right? Y'all don't want to hear me sing a solo. You really don't. It would not edify you. Um, whereas when Robert sings, or when one of several of our soloists sing, it blesses us. It speaks to us. That's not bad. But what we need to understand is the singing... God did not create singing merely so that talented people could use their talents. He created music so that we could all praise, so we could all praise the Lord. I knew a man once uh, who told me, man, I would love to sing in church, but my wife and my daughters won't let me because I'm so bad at it. And I thought, well, what a shame. 
it's okay if you don't have a great voice. Just sing. Just express that. He, the, the actual verb that James use, uses here means to, to play music, to pluck a string instrument, to make melody. The reason God invented mu created music in the first place, I believe, was so that people could express their joy, express their praise, express their, their words of praise to Him. Because let's face it, when you don't know what else to think or how to express yourself, you may not be able to quote a scripture. You probably won't remember uh, the three points of a sermon, but you'll remember a song that you heard when you were a little child. That will come back to you. That music has a power to it. And use that. Sing to yourself. Sing to others. Express your joy uh, through music. Number four. In a house of prayer, there is unbreakable community. Now, this is going to take some explaining. Some of you noticed when I read it that we talked about the anointing with oil passage. What is that about? It says, again, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So, first of all, who are the elders of the church? Now, this is as good a time as any to cover this because there are a couple of different schools of thought. In some churches, there is an office of the church called elder that is separate from the pastor or the pastoral staff. The elders of the church, Presbyterians are one example. They have presbyters or elders, but others do. There are even Baptist churches that are governed by a group of elders. Uh, the idea is the elders are people who are elected to lead the church. In elder-led churches, you rarely have business meetings, once a year, perhaps, to approve a budget or something like that. But the day-to-day -day decisions, the big decisions are made by the board of elders, right? Um, and then there's the pastors, the, the ministers. Sometimes pastors are considered part of the elder staff. It doesn't, it, it, it's not uh, uniform. Sometimes they're considered teaching elders or ministering elders. In most traditional Baptist churches like ours, we don't have an office called elder. And people who come from those other denominations or other backgrounds will say, why don't you have elders? And I'll say, we do. We just don't call them elders. I believe, and Baptists traditionally believe, that the office of pastor, the office of overseer or bishop, depending on which Bible translation you use, and the office of elder are all the same thing in Scripture. Now, you may not care about any of this. You may just say, Jeff, just preach the word. I don't care. But many of you probably do. So let me tell you why we believe that. Let me give you three scriptures. You can write these down if you want to look them up later, but I'll read them to you. Titus 1, 5 through 7. Paul writes to Titus. Titus is a young pastor getting things started in Crete, which means he's doing what Paul did. He would go to a place, he'd plant a church, he'd move on, he'd plant another, he'd come back to the church he had planted first and help them elect elders, and then he'd go on to the next one, etc., etc. So Paul is giving him advice on how to do that, and this is what he says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So did you hear what he said there? Appoint elders, this is what they need to be like, and overseers like him need to be above reproach. So he used the word overseer, which just about everybody agrees is referring to a pastor, and he used the term elder to mean the same thing. 
Here's another example, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. This is Peter the apostle calling himself an elder. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So he, he, he's talking to the elders of his church, and he says, shepherd them using oversight. Again, that term overseeing, being a, a pastor. Uh, and then finally, in Acts 20, verse 17, it says, this is the Apostle Paul as he's traveling to Jerusalem. It says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's calling for the elders of the church in Ephesus that he planted to come meet him at this place where he is now in Miletus because he has some words for them. Now, as he's speaking to them, this is part of what he says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, that's the term that we often ascribe to be pastors. Now, can I just say this? I don't think this is a first order issue. So I'm not saying that churches that are led by elders are are contradicting the word of God or they're, they're wrong or you know, that, that they're heretical or anything like that. If, if you leave this church and join a Presbyterian church or another elder-led church, that's fine. God's going to sort all this out. I'm just saying this is why we don't have an office called elders in the Baptist church. Whether you agree with me or not, what James is saying is when someone is sick, they can call for the leaders of their church to come and pray for them. And then this is the part that's even more controversial, and anoint them with oil. Now, what does that mean? There are two different schools of thought there. Some say it's referring to medicine. So, for instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the Good Samaritan finds a man beaten by the side of the road, he anoints his wounds with oil, he bandages him up, and he puts him on his donkey. So some would say, well, you know, back then, uh, that's the closest thing they had to a salve uh, to heal wounds and other illnesses. So the, the modern day way of saying this is pray for them and make sure they take their medicine. The other school of thought says, no, this has a religious component. The, uh, the apostles, when they, the disciples, when Jesus sent them out to heal and to preach uh, two by two, it says they anointed people with oil and healed them. So under this school of thought, it says that either oil that is blessed by God has healing properties, or that when you anoint someone with oil, it's a symbolic way of saying, this is the power of God. The power of God is on you. It's a physical way for them to feel and know that they've been prayed over. So there's no real power in the oil itself. It's just a, a way of... of giving them comfort, sort of like laying your hands on their head or on their shoulder, right? That's what I believe. I don't believe there's spiritual power in olive oil. Uh, I don't believe that if you anoint someone with olive oil or any other oil, that God's going to use that oil to heal them. But if you don't use the oil, it won't. And I, be I, don't, I believe that because this is the only place in Scripture where this command is given, we're commanded to pray over people in lots of places, but this is the only time, James, when we're told anointing with oil. Now, do I do this? I do when people ask. 
I have a little container of olive oil in my office, and, and from time to time people will come in and say, Pastor, I want you to pray over me and anoint me with oil. I don't pour it over their head. I put a little on my thumb, and I, I dab it on their forehead because I believe that if that encourages them, if that helps them to understand and, and feel the presence of God and know that they've been prayed for, then it is absolutely right. Again, however, I don't believe that if I were not to use oil, or if I were just to pray for them over the phone or on a Sunday morning, just put an arm around them and say a prayer for them, that that's any less effective. Because if it were, I think God's word would tell us so. I understand there are those who disagree, but that's what I think this is about. The point I think is most important is this shows that the command in the first century, when people didn't understand how illnesses were caused, and there was a lot of fear around the subject of illness, when there would be an outbreak of some kind of illness, it was common for people to just flee. If you're sick, I'm staying far away from you. We got a taste of that during COVID, didn't we? But this was the way it was for every illness in the ancient world. What James says is, no, go to them. Pray over them. In fact, some have said, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but the term pray over implies physical contact. Instead of pray for, pray over means you're laying hands on them. You're in their presence. Uh, you think about Elijah stretching out his body over the little boy who had passed away. Uh, I doubt anybody wants their pastor to do that for them. But I think it is comforting to have someone put an arm around you or a hand on your shoulder or take you by the hand and pray for you. And we should not be afraid to do this. We should, be, we should be in the business of comforting one another and praying for one another in that way. And that's what I mean when I say in a house of prayer, there's unbreakable community. We should be willing uh, to pray over one another. Number five, in a, in a house of prayer, there is confession of sin. In verse 16, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, that's, that's interesting. Uh, what does that mean? First of all, why are you confessing sin to one another when God is the only one who can forgive? Secondly, what does he mean when he says, so that you may be healed? We know, we know from Scripture that not all illness is caused by sin, but this is an implication that sometimes illness can be caused by sin. So what do we do with this? Now, this is my interpretation, and I could be wrong, but I think about 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church that is having a problem, a controversy about the Lord's Supper. Now, this takes some explaining, so I hope you'll follow me down this little rabbit hole for a minute. This is hard for us to grasp because in, in our churches, the Lord's Supper is something we do at the end of a worship service, and we pass out little trays of, of bread and, and, and little cups of juice, and, and we take it as a, as a spiritual rite, and it's over. But in early churches, often the Lord's Supper was something they did every Sunday, and it was an actual meal. They would gather together, and they would, they would eat together. It was a way of, of having fellowship with each other. Remember, these were, these were small congregations. They fit into a single house, usually. They would gather together, they would eat together, and as they ate, they would remember the Lord's death for our sake. Take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood, drink ye all of it. They would make sure and do that. There was fellowship, there was remembrance. But in Corinth, it was causing problems. It was causing conflict. 
Because as we read between the lines of what Paul's saying, apparently there were some who were showing up and eating up all the food. So others would show up later and they wouldn't have anything to eat. And there were some who would refuse to eat with other members of the church. They'd only eat with people who were like them. You know, we speak in tongues. We're going to have our tongue speaking table over here where we feast together. None of you non-tongue speakers are welcome. And so Paul says to them, listen, you need to stop dividing the church of God. You need to think about how you're doing this. And here's the scripture I think that is relevant. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28 after Paul has, has talked about the meaning of the Lord's Supper, he says this. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, I used to believe and I used to even preach that what this was saying was, if you take the Lord's Supper, but you've got sin in your heart, then God is going to judge you. But then I read this closer. And I realized all of us have sin. None of us are perfect. It's hard to even define what does it mean to be right with the Lord when you take the Lord's Supper. When you read this in context, what I think Paul is saying, because he says you have to discern the body. What is he talking about? I think he's talking about the body of Christ. What he's saying is when you gather for the Lord's Supper, remember you're part of a body. You're part of a whole group. This isn't just about you. Again, he's saying, don't show up and eat up all the food. Don't show up and refuse to sit next to somebody. It's, your concern should not just be about your own soul, but about the body of Christ. So taking this further, Paul is saying in that passage, anybody who's damaging the unity of God's people is disrupting the unity of the church and especially using the Lord's Supper to do it, well, God's going to judge them. So Paul's saying, there's a reason why some of you have gotten sick. There's a reason why some of you've died, because you've been troublemakers. You've been dividers within the body of Christ, and God has judged you for it. That's serious business. There might be a link between what Paul says there and what he says here. And the reason why he says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed, he may be talking about a similar issue. If there's division in the body of Christ, You've hurt someone. You've spread gossip about them or they've, you've gotten mad at them and refused to forgive. Uh, you've, you've divided God's church. You need to confess to that person. Don't wait for them to come and apologize to you. Confess to that person. Otherwise, God may judge you. You may get sick. James is saying, I think, what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of you need to look into your lives and say, what's the reason why I can't get well? Maybe it's because I haven't confessed my sin to this person that I have wounded. I haven't confessed the sin of being a, a, a troublemaker, a stumbling stone in my local congregation. Yeah, Jim. Correct. I, that's what I believe. Yeah, it's about, yeah. Coming in an unworthy manner, I believe, is yeah, if you've caused a problem with a brother or you know they have a problem with you, you haven't done everything you can to make it right. That's what I believe. Yes. Um, okay, so there is confession of sin. And then number six, in a, in a church that's house of prayer, there are miracles. It's just, it's true. It, according to Scripture, verses 17 and 18, he talks about Elijah. We know the story of Elijah. Hopefully you do. Uh, 
One of Elijah's greatest miracles was, was a miracle of destruction, you might say. He prayed against the rain. Makes you think maybe he's been around here lately. But no, I don't think we can blame this on Elijah. But for seven years, can you imagine? Yeah, you probably can. Seven years of no rain. And then one day he prays and there comes a great outbreak of rain. And James's point is Elijah was not God in human flesh like Jesus. He was an ordinary man, but he prayed in faith. His point is, if, if Elijah could do that, you and I can too. Now, you always have to balance that with what the rest of the scriptures say. Because there are plenty of indications that sometimes even apostles would pray and God would say no. Paul talks about some of his prayers that didn't get answered in the affirmative. So this doesn't mean, this is, you can't take this out of context and say anything you ask for, if you have enough faith, you're going to get it. As a side note, do you really want to serve a God who never says no to his children? I don't any more than I want a, a child to be raised by a parent who never says no to his kids. God, the parent should know better than his kids. God knows better than us. Sometimes he will say no. But the point is, if we don't pray, we will never see him move. If we don't ask for a miracle, we'll never see a miracle. And, and so whenever I think about how, well, there's just, we don't see the miracles anymore uh, that we hear about in other places in earlier ages, I can't account for how God acts or why he does what he does, but maybe, maybe it's because we don't pray. Maybe because we consider ourselves too busy. Maybe it's because we don't take the time or, or think there's any power in, in gathering together as a people of God and saying, Lord, we need you right now. Maybe it's also because we've insulated ourselves. If you talk to some missionaries in certain parts of the world, they'll talk about miraculous things they see happening. Uh, but those are people who are putting themselves on the line. It's pretty hard for anybody here in the United States of America to say we're risking much for the Lord. Maybe if we were more faithful in terms of, I'm going to go wherever God tells me to go. I'm going to take risks. I'm going to do His will no matter what. Maybe we would see His power more in evidence. I don't know. All I know is if we don't pray, we won't see Him move. And then finally, in a church that's a house of prayer, there is redemption. I love the way the book of James ends. It says if there's a, a person who has wandered from the faith and someone brings him back, then that person has saved a sinner from his wandering, has saved his soul from death, and covered a multitude of sins. Think about what that's saying. To cover a multitude of sins means that God has forgiven that person, but James here makes it sound like we've done it. And we know from the scriptures that's not literally true, that we can't forgive anyone's sin. But in God's eyes, it's like we share the credit. If we bring someone who has wandered from the truth back to the truth and their sins are forgiven, God says, thanks for helping. Even though we know he didn't need us, he chose to use us, but we get the joy of knowing that we were part of that victory. We were part of that redemption. And that's something that is celebrated in heaven, not just when it happens, but for the rest of eternity. You know, as, as sports fans, it, we, have all these mem we have all these statistics we like to keep track of. Baseball is the worst. You know, baseball, every number, you know, if a serious baseball fan can tell you who hit the most home runs and who's got the most RBIs and, oh yeah, remember who was MVP in, in 1975 and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. 
But I believe in heaven, that's the way we'll remember things like this. You remember when, when, when Joe brought so-and-so back into the family of God? Remember when, when Jane had walked away, but then Sue went and, and called her on the phone and, and went over to her house and brought her back in? Yes, remember, remember when that, we had that great celebration and all the angels just broke out into song because another sinner came home and the father wept tears of joy. I have to say, when you read Luke, Luke 15, and I just did, and Jesus is talking about the lost sheep and how the shepherd leaves the 99 in the fold and goes after that one lost sheep and the lost coin and how that woman sweeps her house to find that one lost coin and the prodigal son who wanders away, those three stories, those three incredibly memorable stories Reading it this week, I was just struck all over again what an amazing storyteller Jesus was. But think about it. Those were stories of people who were in the fold and left. Now, there is a school of thought out there, and I've heard this many times. I, get, I hear this often as a pastor. I heard it a lot in the days when COVID was starting to wind down. The school of thought says, don't worry about the people who have left you. Just reach out to the ones you haven't reached yet. The school of thought says, people who've left you, you can't get them back. It's a waste of time. They've made their decision. Just let them go. Focus on the lost. I understand that mindset. I understand. I understand it's frustrating to chase after sheep who have wandered. I really do. I've experienced that frustration. I just don't see any warrant for that attitude in the Bible. I think you got to do both. I think you have to do both. God loves the backslidden believer just as much as he loves the lost unbeliever. And it's not a waste of time to continue to call them and drop by and visit them, even if they seem just hardened as can be, even if they get angry with you for not leaving them alone. They still matter to God. God loves them both. And you're probably thinking of somebody particular when I say that. If you've been in church for very long, you've known situations like this. Maybe a member of our church, maybe a member of your family. So right now, the way I want to close is just give us a moment silently to lift those folks up to the Lord. So whoever comes to your mind when you think of either a backslidden believer or an unsaved unbeliever, or both. Just lift them up to the Lord. I'll, I'll give you about 30 seconds to pray, and then I'll close this. Oh Lord, let us never forget about the people who you've brought into our lives to make an impact on. And Lord, each one of us knows people, uh, some in our family and many who are not, who have never made a confession of faith, who've never accepted you as Lord, or as far as we can tell, don't seem to have a relationship with you. Pray that we would love them with the love that you have. 
And we also know people who used to be following you faithfully and, and now don't seem to be. And it's not up to us to figure out whether they were really saved and, and are just wandering or whether they were never really saved and, and they've just fallen away. That's not our decision to make. What matters is they're not walking with you now. And they're not involved in church. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be broken for them too. And we can't control what they do. And they may never come back to you, but let it not be because we gave up. I pray that we would be the people you want us to be. And that we would see salvation of the lost. And we would see people coming back to you in this church over and over again. Lord, we thank you for the book of James, for all that it teaches us. Thank you especially for these instructions on prayer and make us truly a house of prayer for, for all nations. Lord, I pray that that would happen across this country as you revive your people. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.